But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of what? Their unbelief. So let's go to Mark chap- Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which is given to him? that such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and, the, and, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and, and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So he, now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Now let's go over to Luke, and we're going to use a lot of Luke today here. That has the, the, the most in-depth account. So Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. The screen just went off, so you may not... Luke 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, in Jewish custom, you weren't allowed to read in the synagogue at all until you were 30 years old. So he stands up to read. This is the, the beginning times of his, his ministry. He says, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when heaven was shut up in three years and six, for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow." And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, 
and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, just because I won't touch on this so much, verses 24 to 27 right there, that why are they mad? Because the people that were healed there were Gentiles. And the Gentiles had believed the message of God, but the Jews here, even those he grew up with, don't believe the message. So that's why he throws that in there. And they're mad at that. They're mad. So from the time of Samuel, the Jews had desired a king to rise up and make them a mighty, mighty nation. And so they wanted kings who would be, at least in outward appearance, great the exception or the expectation that one day their Messiah would show up and he'd be this king, this powerful king that could still free them, like from Roman rule. Jesus didn't fit this image that they thought the Messiah should be. They only knew Jesus as a a local boy from uh, the insignificant town of Nazareth. Certainly nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? They were not able to perceive him as having any kind of kingly credentials. So they were unable to see Jesus as more than just a common man. uh, Sadly, uh, the same is thought of Jesus today. Some people think of him as just a a man. He's no more than just a historical figure, a man who lived long ago. But mankind has to see that Jesus is more than just a carpenter's son. He's more than a historical figure in order to be saved. Look at John, as a matter of fact, go to John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, that I am he, if you don't believe I'm God, you will die in your sins. So he's more than Joseph's son. He's more than the the carpenter's son. He's more than just the boy that grew up in Nazareth. So, you know, what are we doing? As I was preparing this, I'm thinking, what are we doing to teach this truth to those in our sphere of influence? Does the people we identify with on a weekly basis know who Jesus is? Okay, so, you know, do, do they know that we have a great commission to go out and teach who Christ was, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. I think it's important that we present Jesus as the awesome God that he is, that he's more than just this historical figure, that we present him exactly like Scripture says he is. that's, That's elementary, Pastor Dan. Yeah, it is, but we still need to be reminded to do that. Jesus raised the dead, he healed the sick, he had had and has authority over demonic spirits, he had and still has authority over the laws of nature. Even in his birth, death, and resurrection, he repeatedly revealed that he was and is the Messiah, and not just the Messiah, but the Savior of the world. 
All the things that he did, all the things that John records, and even the synoptic gospels, what they record, shows that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is the great I am. Yet still men fail to recognize him for who he was, and they do today. They don't recognize him for who he is. Look at, again, look at Luke 4, 22. Here's where most people are today in their thinking. Is this not Joseph's son? Look, go to John 8, verses 9, verse 19. Look at what they said about him here. John 8, 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for the hour had not yet come. What do you, what do you think they're asking him? Where's your father? What do you think? What do you think? Come on. See, there's this stigma still going on with Jesus. He's an illegitimate child. You go, well, we know who our father is. It's Abraham. Well, who's your father? So they, he's never, you know, he's been thought of this way. They fail to recognize him for who he really was. He, he was and is far more than men could see or can see today. He is the son of God. He is the fulfillment of all types and prophecies of the Old Testament. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. Let's go to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, we want to be in the first two verses there in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And Jesus stands up in the temple at 30 years of age and says, I fulfilled this. I'm here to fulfill that prophecy. We see that brought up here again in Luke chapter 4. Let's go back, let's go to Luke 4 again. And here it is, verses 18 and 19. So let's break that down a little bit, if we can. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. For him to stand up and say, this, this prophecy is fulfilled in me today, must have just upset the masses. Because I'm telling you, not only that I was I sent to do this, I am the only one sent to do this. I am God that can do this. So he's sent to what? Preach the gospel to the poor. Now, to, that means to, to herald the good news to those who are poor or destitute. The definition is, uh, when you look it up, in, it means to be destitute of wealth, position, influence, and honor. The lowly, afflicted, destitute of the Christian virtues and eternal riches of God. Basically, you're at the bottom. There's nothing. You are poor. Not poor so much in monetarily, although that's included in the definition, but poor in spirit. You have no, if you're poor, you can't buy your way out of anything. 
So Jesus comes to help the helpless, the powerless, to accomplish an end to that. And if you look at Isaiah, hold your place there and go back to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Or if you don't want to do that, you can just look at it later. It's all in your bulletin, all these verses. But you get here to Isaiah 51.1. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. <clears throat> you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah. It goes on. Okay, so Matthew 11. That's not in your bulletin. I'm going to add it right here. Matthew 11, and I want you to go to verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Look at the description of Christ. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Folks, have you found rest for your soul? It's only found where? In Christ. In a relationship with Christ. That's the only place you'll find rest. That's the only place mankind can find rest is in Christ. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, if you're poor in spirit, you want to run to Christ. There was a time when I was poor. There was a time, if, 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 to get off the notes here for just a second, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Folks, there's a time when I was like you here. We didn't belong to the family of God. We, there was a time when I had to <clears throat> confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to be at my Savior, to repent of my sins, to be added into that family. Although he knew I was going to be there, there was a time when I sat still under the wrath of God because I wasn't a member of that, the household of God. But now in Christ Jesus, look at verse 13. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise Jesus for that. And, and if we kept going, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Both the Jew and the Gentile now, made to one family called the church, under, through the blood of Christ, there's no wall of division anymore. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the, it, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, that's both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And it goes on. Now I'm part of a family, which is amazing. But there was a time when I wasn't. But now the gospel has reached a, a poor man. And now I'm no longer poor. Hello? I'm spiritually rich. Not monetarily, but I'm spiritually rich. I have all the blessings of Christ or all the, the, the what's Ephesians 3.1 say? Let's look. 
or 1-3, excuse me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Praise Jesus for that. And you know what? I don't even know what they are. That's what's even more exciting. How'd you like to unwrap that gift when you get to heaven? Or actually, it's been unwrapped. You get to see what it is. What's the, what else he come to do? Let's go back to Luke 4 here. Not just to preach the gospel to the poor, or John 4, excuse me, Luke 4. Not just to preach the, the, the gospel to the poor, or what else? To heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To cure those who have suffered extreme sorrow. It would be the definition of that. Those whose spirit had been crushed. Literally, it means to be under the foot of a conqueror. So the brokenhearted are those who are under the feet of a conqueror, under the feet of Satan. So he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted or to, or, or to, um, to heal the brokenhearted or the downtrodden would be coming up here. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. 1 Peter 5, 7. Let's start in 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he what? He cares for you. Does he care about the brokenhearted? The answer is yes. Hebrews 13, 5. Going into the book of Hebrews. This is a verse every believer should know and trust. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Praise the Lord for that. Now, there was a time when I was brokenhearted. I was with no hope at all. Yet he came to heal those who were brokenhearted. Those who are under the, 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 bound by the chains of the enemy. Those who are under his feet. And he has set us free. Praise God for that. The brokenhearted. You remember the time you were brokenhearted where you had no hope in life? You're searching and searching and searching for this way out of being poor in spirit or brokenhearted. You don't even know what you want until then all of a sudden Jesus comes and gets you. You're without no hope. And so now what's he come to do? In Luke chapter 4. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Oh, by the way, the Lord is still working with us. If you went to Romans 8.28, which is a good verse to look at here. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Okay? And to those who are called according to his purpose. So he's, he's come to preach or or proclaim liberty to the captives, or to preach deliverance to the captives. It literally means those held at spear point in the Greek. Deliverance to the captives. They're, they're being held in bondage. They're being held as if by the spear. You can't move. You can't go anywhere. You're a prisoner. So to declare that there is freedom to everyone held captive by Satan's spear is the thought. 
So sinners are held captive. They are in bondage to Satan. Jesus can set them free. Praise God, he came to set us free. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7 would say, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Praise God, it doesn't hold me captive anymore. I've been delivered from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Praise Jesus. So as we go through this, he says, recovering of sight. What does he say? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. There was a time when you and I were blind. Do you ever think about that? You say, oh, Lord, have you ever done miracles in my life? He's given you eyes to see, oh, by the way, and ears to hear. There was a time when we were blind. We didn't see what was happening. He says to give sight to the blind it literally means to be to give sight to those blinded by smoke. You know, smoke and mirrors, you know. I can't kind of see through the fog. Literally, the, the mentality and uh, the mentally and spiritually blind is, is, is the target here. Satan has power to deceive. We are, we're blinded to, because we were in his control, we bought the lies. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if you would go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. You'll remember this if we read verse 3 with that. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were blind too until God says, I want you to see. Praise God for that. I could be sitting who knows where today, some bar, some place, looking for hope and answers for life and be so far in darkness that I, I haven't got a clue what's going on. But it was Jesus himself who came into my dark life and shown a, bigger than a flashlight, light. Just go, oh, here you go. This is who you are, Dan, and this is who I am. Oh. So we were once blind, but now we can see. Jesus can open the eyes of, of those who have been blinded by the enemy. Psalm 146. Hold your place there in Luke 4. Go to Psalm 146. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And it goes on, the Lord watches over strangers. And, but what does he do to the blind? Who opens my blind eye? Does it, do I do it? Is that something that I can do if, if, I just, if I just try harder and harder? Can I open my own eyes? 
to see. No, it is the Lord who opens blind eyes. I can't take the credit at all for seeing God. I can't take the credit for all knowing that I should be saved. I can't take the credit that I realized I was a sinner. Jesus opened my eyes. And so what's, what's the next thing that's done here that Jesus was sent to do in Luke 4? To set at liberty those who are oppressed or those who are downtrodden. The release from bondage of those who have been crushed, who have been oppressed, who have been walked over. And we go back even to Isaiah 61.1. And, and, and look at that again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon, of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to set at liberty those that are oppressed. Satan is having, well, matter of fact, let's go to Galatians here, chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. But who has made us free? That's the point I'm after here. Christ, okay? Satan is having a great time at the expense of God's children today because he still keeps people in bondage. Well, Jesus set them free. Sometimes we allow ourselves to be put in bondage. We, sometimes we go back to the, the same vomit we were delivered from. We go back, we run back to sin, and we can put ourselves back in bondage if we're not careful. That doesn't mean, God, you're, you're unsaved. That means I can get involved in some activities that I shouldn't be in, and I can put myself in that bondage. But I want to be careful with that. Okay, You don't have to be continually beaten up. Jesus has promised you victory. Live in victory. Okay? He set you free, gave you liberty, but not liberty to sin. So, and to preach, he comes and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, to proclaim that the doors of salvation have been opened, is what he's saying there. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. I'll read one here with it. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Now, imagine Jesus standing up in the synagogue, and he goes through this list, okay, that we see here, uh, again here in Luke 4. He, he's run, going through this list, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I have good news to say to the poor. I'm coming with my gospel to preach to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. My, I'm coming here to take care of those who are hurting, who are broken in spirit. And I'm coming to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm going to set them free from sin, the bondage of it, and recover the sight to the blind. I'm going to let people see their need for me spiritually. And I'm going to use miracles to show this too, physical healings to show a spiritual truth. 
I'm going to set at liberty those who are, are oppressed, those who have been in bondage, the, the people possessed by demons, the people oppressed by demons. I'm going to set them free. It's God's ministry to set his people free and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And folks, I'm telling you, right as Jesus said that, he, I say, and, and that's fulfilled today in your presence. Okay, Today, is the day for your salvation. It's not six months from now. It's not today. Your salvation is standing before you. And guess what they see? They don't see it. All the opportunity. So here, where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, Jesus declared himself to be the one, the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus told them that what they had waited for was now here. Verse 21 of Luke 4. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That Messiah you've been waiting for, the deliverer you've been waiting for, the king you're looking for, he's standing right here. The deliverer you wanted, that you've been asking for, for thousands of years, been praying for, from the first proto-evangel where God himself says, I will provide somebody that's going to crush Satan. I'm standing right here. And so, when Jesus revealed his divinity, by the way, that's what he's showing there, to the Jews residing in Nazareth, they questioned his authority. Let's go, let's go back to Matthew chapter 13's account. Matthew 13. They questioned his authority. And we're going to go to Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables... And he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, uh, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were well, look at this. They were offended, or they took offense at him. Offended. That's a, that's a strange word to put there. They were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. But they were offended at him. This, is not an, this was not unexpected, considering they only knew him as the carpenter's son. They, they could not believe that the carpenter's son was the son of God. You cannot be God in the flesh. You can't fulfill this prophecy because you're no more than some poor pauper from the city of Nazareth. That is not what we're looking for. And so, because they had known him from boyhood, they became offended, literally the word there for offended is they, he became a stumbling block. That's interesting, right? When he claimed to be the Messiah. Look at Romans 9. Let's go to Romans 9. Hold your place there in Luke. And what, what do we know about the stumbling block here? Romans 9.33. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Who is that? It's Jesus. Okay, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
But there is a stumbling block there. We can read more about that if we, if we uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. Let's start back here in verse uh, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Amen, he has. How has he done that? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, or the gospel, to save those who believe. Seems like a, a weird thing to save people through the preaching of the gospel. That, yeah, that's the plan that God came up with. To the Jews, the Jews request a sign. You know, Lord, prove it's you. And Greeks seek after wisdom. Let's debate this. Let's talk about this. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, that's us, folks, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And it goes on. But don't miss that, okay? Uh, the, there, he is a stumbling block to people. And they could not accept Jesus as their king or as their Messiah because they had a false view of who the Messiah would be. If you go back here to Isaiah 53, and let's look at, just look at the first three verses. For who has believed our report? Here's Isaiah talking about this. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of, uh, or comeliness. I mean, he's an average looking guy. And when you see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's not going to be like a Saul, a really tall guy. He's not coming as this, you know, I'm sure he's muscular because he's a carpenter. But he's not this huge superhero looking kind of person that you would just be amazed at. Oh, certainly this is the Messiah. He's 6'5", man. Look at him. 320 pounds of muscle, right? That's our king. Nobody's going to be the king. And who's going to fight against him? You know, oh, do we got this? This five, nine, six foot guy that's skinny as a rail? That's not our king. And look, he's not even handsome. When we see him, there's no beauty we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, we, he, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. They ended up looking at him as, you deserve to die. You know, there was no appeal that he would be kingly at all. So they, they, he didn't fit what they thought was coming. All they had to do yet was believe the good news that he came to declare and just believe in him, yet they rejected him and tried to kill him. But he's alive. 
But God's Hebrews deals with the superiority, the, the, Jesus being superior to angels, to, you know, he's seen as superior to, as supreme to angels. Hebrews 1, uh, verses 4 through 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father, or again I will be a, his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You know, how, this, what does God say about his son? He says he's greater than anything in heaven. Hebrews chapter 2, if we, were, we could read that, and I got these written down, so you just follow along here. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard? To Moses, in Hebrews 3, 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house is more, has more honor than the house. God talks to, about him being high priest, Hebrews 5, 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's greater than angels. He's God's spokesman to the world. He's greater than Moses. He's, he's a, the great high priest. He's, Hebrews 8, 6 says he's the mediator. That would say, but he has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. As to the blood... God says in Hebrews 9.12, Not with blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. As to the covenant that he was going to keep, he said, Hebrews 10.9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, to take away the first, that I may establish the second. Talking about covenant. See, what I'm trying to say to you is, what was standing before them in Nazareth at that time was not just a man. This, this was the Redeemer. The, you know, in these last days even, he speaks through his son, doesn't he? Isn't that what Hebrews 1 says? God who's at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom... Also he made the worlds who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and then going on and upholding all things. So what are we to do with God's son? What are we supposed to do with Jesus? And Matthew 17, 5 says, While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. And here we hear him through the word of God today. Now despite the evidence to, you know, to, to verify the claims of Jesus, such as through signs he did that, uh, through scripture, yet they don't believe. We have the word of God today. We have so many tools today. We have testimonies of people. We have historical accounts. We have so much that proves all that Jesus is who he says he is and man still doesn't believe and un, 
belief can take different forms. It can show up in not believing God, not believing God's word, okay, or not, uh, not even believing God's way is the best way. Unbelief is related to doubt, and doubt dwelt on and not confronted and challenged will send a person to hell. That's it. Unbelief's a big deal. I mean, look at 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Start in 4. So we should even cast these things down as believers. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments of every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captive and obedience of Christ. You ready to fight against unbelief? Not just in your own life, but other people who don't believe. We're to, you know... Hey, I don't believe this garbage of the Bible, and I don't believe all the stuff they say. You know, I, I don't want nothing to do with him. Boy, the sword comes out, folks. Wait a minute. I'm going to contend with that. I'm going to fight against your unbelief. I'm going to pull down that stronghold. This is true. Now let me show you how. I just pull the sword. I use the sword. Let me show you what, why this is true. And I'll tell you, if you speak the word of God into the life of a person that doesn't believe, that word will accomplish what it's set out to do. But are you willing to pick up the sword and have the discussion or the argument or defend the faith and say, listen, there's no such thing as unbelief. Because your unbelief is a belief. It's a <laughs> are you willing to contend with those around you that don't believe the gospel? It's a big deal. And yes, even in us who belong to Christ, we could, we could doubt God's word. How many of you here have doubted God's word before? Let's be honest. Okay, got a young man here who says, I doubted God's word. Okay, how, how does that show up? Well, Lord, I've been reading this and I've been praying and nothing's happening. So let me do my own thing. Let me help you, God, because you're not doing this fast enough for me. What am I doing? I'm doubting the word. Well, Lord, you promise that I have eternal life, but I don't feel like I have eternal life. What did you just do? You doubt. There's no faith there. That's doubt. The opposite of faith is doubt. What God's word, what does it say about unbelief? Let's go back here to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let's just start there. Deuteronomy 32. You think that they'd be addressed here in the Old Testament? Let's look at verse, verse 19 to 20. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his, his sons and his daughters. <clears throat> now his is capitalized, by the way. And he said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is what? No faith. By the way, what is it that, that pleases God? Anybody know? Faith. What does Hebrews eleven six tell us? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. All right? That's not all of it. Let's go there. Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Well, who is he? He's God in the flesh. 
that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Okay? There's some requirements attached to that, aren't there? I must believe that he is in order to please him. My faith believes that he is. My, my faith that believes he's a rewarder of those who barely seek him. Diligent. What does that mean? Aggressive. Earnestly. God is not pleased with people that are half-baked in their devotion to him. He wants people, looking for people, pleased by people who diligently seek him. Oh, by the way, is that the believer or the unbeliever? Yeah. Guess what he's talking about? He's coming off of, uh, right before we go through the hall of faith, Moses, all these people listed there, Abraham, they were diligently seeking God. I wondered if the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, if it was still being printed today, would your name show up there? These are the ones who are, are stiff-necked, the one who doesn't believe. Okay, So what's the, what's the root source of unbelief? Well, it's sin, but it's also a, a, a result of Satan's working in people. Okay, If you go to John 8 and look at that. But how is unbelief in a person manifest? How does it show up? Where, where can I see unbelief? Well, I start to question God's word. Not in where I want to learn. I question it as in doubt. Well, that can't mean what it says, right? We got so many denominations in this nation, in this world, because somebody goes, that can't mean what it says. <laughs> There's only one doctrine that's right, and all the rest of the denomination. Who's the rightest one, right? Wouldn't you like to roll into a town and see the Eighth Baptist Church? You, you, you don't, it's always First Baptist, right? or first this, or first that. How, uh, never mind. The, the last Baptist church. Unbelief shows up in questioning God's word, questioning God's power. Now look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 19 and 20. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Look at the doubt. Oh, yeah. So what if he hit a rock and rivers are... I mean, it's a river coming out of the... It's not trickling. That's the amount of water that it would take to, to, to water the livestock and, and refresh the people on a daily you know how much water has to come through that desert to, to, to take care of a million some odd people? Huh? You know how much firewood they'd have to have to, to just cook with and do sacrifices also? You look at that picture of the desert they went through, see if you can find firewood. Okay, I'm just saying God does some mighty things. All right? Oh, yeah, we got water out of the rock, but can he give us bread to eat? Oh, Got manna from heaven. Oh yeah, well that's nice. You know, can can he can he give us meat? Of course, you might find yourself hating meat when you start questioning God and His power. 
You can imagine, okay, I'll give you quail. I'll give you quail as far as your eye can see, knee deep. You know what that smelled like the next day? But we, we sh- the unbelief in a person manifests itself in questioning his word, questioning his power, even discounting evidence. Like if we go to John chapter 12, John 12 verses 27, 20, starting 27, consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not, <clears throat> and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things that the, the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all his righteousness shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags which bags which do not grow old and treasures in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat with him and goes on. I could have used Matthew's account. This is Luke's account. But the point here is we discount evidence that God even desires to take care of us. He says, don't worry. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. How many believe that? Okay. So are you seeking God's kingdom first, or are you trying to get all these things yourself? Because God says he'll provide for you if you're seeking these things. But we doubt. The point is, and, and, and unbelief could come just as rejecting Christ and rejecting the gospel. Okay. So my point is, if we go back to and look at our text here in Luke chapter 4, here's Jesus standing up in the synagogue and they had no idea they were going to hear this. But they didn't believe it. Here it is, fulfilled right in front of them, and they didn't believe the truth. Okay, So if Christ is presented as the one who is anointed to preach the gospel to the poor and heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and set liberty to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Why is it that the world rejects that? Why is it that the world rejects that? Well, we could say their eyes are blind, right? We could say there's no desire for him. We could say God hasn't moved upon them yet for salvation. Maybe that's the case. But I think... If you were to ask somebody today why they don't believe in Jesus, what would they say? Would they say what? It's not true? 
Otherwise, they say, I don't need him. Would they simply do what our text says in John chapter 4, and it it almost goes over it, is, let me go back here, and John doesn't, probably isn't giving us all the detail because that's not important for what John wants to bring about, but nevertheless, it's there. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. You might find that even in your own household. Your kids may not want to hear what you have to say because they may see you as, well, I know what you really like. I see your weaknesses. I see your, you know. It's hard to talk about Jesus in your family, isn't it? The day after the Lord got a hold of my life, I went to my family and I said, hey, you all people need to repent. You just don't do that. I mean, you should kind of build into that. Because they said to me, we know what you're really like. See, what I didn't do is give time maybe to, so they could see fruit in my life. Wisdom, I would tell you to do that, right? But I was a prophet without honor in my own home. I don't, I don't even listen to you. Even if you're raising children, your kids don't always hear what you have to say with the gospel or the word of God. They see it, but, you know, especially if... God has not become their God yet. You know, they grow up having their mom and dad's God. But it's quite funny when you, they go off and go to a different church or something, they're saved, and they come back and tell you the things that you taught them, that somebody else taught them. But, so don't get offended at that so much as if you're not heard in your own home, because it, it's, it's a normal thing. They didn't even hear Jesus. Why? Because they were, they were, he was familiar with them. They were common with them. All right. He's just the carpenter's kid. All right. I don't want you to miss that. That's why we brought it out. So let's pray. Father God, you are awesome in that you show us things in your word, Father. Um, I suppose, Father, that if I was in that uh, synagogue at the same time, I probably would have said the same things. You know, I would have not known, Father, who you were. Matter of fact, today, Father, I wouldn't know who you were unless you revealed yourself in a mighty way, which you did. And I want to thank you for that. The only reason I know you as God, the only reason I know you as my Savior, as my Redeemer, as my Mediator, as all those things that you are is because you've revealed them to me. I am so grateful that I know you. I am so grateful that you've saved me. And Lord, when I mean me, I even mean us, Father. I am grateful that you reveal yourself in your word to us, especially when we are in a world that doesn't know you. But Lord, let us be those who show the world who you are. Open doors for us to proclaim your word, to teach your word, to make disciples. Father, everyone in this congregation needs to have somebody they're pouring their life and your word into. Father, everyone here needs somebody that knows who you are, teaching people who don't know who you are. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.